This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I'm delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Gabriel Yoran about his new book, The Interfacts on Structure and Compatibility in Object-Oriented Ontology. Gabriel Yoran is both an entrepreneur and an author. He recently published another book in German called Warum heißt es Traum und nicht Memory Schaum? Uh, today, we'll be discussing The Interfact, published in 2021 with Open Humanities Press. Dr. Joran, welcome to the show. Adam, thanks for having me. Could you talk a little bit about yourself and your inspiration for writing this book? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm, um, my, my start um, in um, getting interested in object-oriented ontology was actually by accident because um, I started my professional life as a software developer. And in software development, there is a concept called object-oriented programming. And when I heard about object-oriented ontology, um, which was in a um, uh, class that um, Graham Harmon, who coined the term, gave, I approached him after the class and I told him there is so many different so many similarities between object oriented ontology and object oriented programming this can't be by accident like I I bet you have a background in programming uh, and he was no I'm, I I I don't I actually don't like I know that there is something like object oriented programming but I have no idea what it is and I said you, you you can't be this can't be real like um has no one ever approached you about this? Like, aren't there books about this? Um, and at that time, that was in 2013, I guess, that there weren't. And so I looked into this and I and um, and I, I, I researched this, and I thought in the beginning, this is what I'm going to write a, a PhD thesis about, <laughs> like about the parallels between these two things. And um, it's, it's, it ended up being in the thesis. It also ended up being in the Interfact book. But it's, it only became a stepstone to further thinking about object-oriented ontology. And so I felt that at some point in, in 2013, 2014, I was in a um, random but very privileged position of talking about object-oriented ontology in a way that wasn't it hasn't been done before 
And uh, in thousands of years of the history of philosophy, you don't get to do that <laughs> very often. So, so um, yeah, so that's where this, this whole endeavor um, started. Perhaps we could start with an overview of Triple O for the listeners. Yeah, so Triple O, um, object-oriented ontology, is a um, train of thought, a school, if you will, under a bigger umbrella called speculative, speculative realism, which again is a group of realisms. So um, if you're vaguely familiar with like um, philosophical terms, which I don't know about the audience, I, I, I guess some might be, um, basically these, like realism means all kinds of philosophies that state that there is a world independent of our like observing it of measuring it of, of looking at like there are independent things in the world independent of um for example our perception of them um that sounds pretty normal for like um people not in philosophy but in philosophy that's a big thing because there are there are competing schools that are way more popular uh, like idealism for example so um the interesting thing is that this school that has been kind of discarded as naive and a bit stupid and simplistic uh, made such a comeback um, with something that doesn't really look like a real, like a proper realism at all. So um, that's that's um, a critique that um, often is uttered about um, speculative realism. Is that a realism? It's it's kind of strange and. The proponents of this school also talk of their thoughts as a strange realism. Even like uh, Graham Harmon, who is like one of the main people in this in this movement, um, calls this philosophy strange. And we'll we'll get to that later, I think. But um, so, what does it do? Like, why why is it different, or what what uh, in in which regard does it differ from previous schools of thought? So. The main idea or the main criticism of other schools of thought um, that object-oriented ontology poses is that it basically accuses other um, um, uh, trains of thought as um, undermining or overmining the world. So what does undermining overmining mean? Undermining means um, reducing objects to their parts, like, for example, you look at a chair and you would be asked, like, what is this object? What is a chair? And an undermining person would say, well, it's made of these atoms. Um, and these atoms are made of even smaller pieces. And, and that's what a chair is. Like, it's this structure made of, like, tiny parts. Um, and that person probably wouldn't be wrong, but it's not the whole truth, because then there's the overmining position, stating that reducing objects, uh, stating um, objects are um, their effects and their context. Like a chair is something that can be used to sit on it at a table, for example, and it has legs or something. And yeah, that's not wrong either. But they are overmining. Like they're ignoring uh, a huge part of what a chair is. And um, Graham Harmon, uh, 
says, um, most people actually do duo mining. <laughs> That's his term, which is a combination of undermining and overmining. So I guess if, if you would ask um, anyone um, what is a chair and you give them these two options, they would probably agree that both seem pretty good. Like both seem correct. And um, Triple O says, yes, but that can't be it because they're always reducing the thing, in this case, the, the, the chair, to something else. So they're, they're not talking about the chair. They're talking about tiny parts or they're talking about the use of the chair and the thing in itself, to use that term, very <laughs> um, that ominous term, um, gets lost. So what's... What happened to this? What happened to the chair? So, and that's a very, very good question. And it seems very simple, but it's exceptionally hard to answer. And what, um, um, what Harman tries to do and in object-oriented ontology is to say, yes, um, the, the towering figure of Western philosophy, Immanuel Kant, was right. Like, there, there are these things outside of our, like, um, outside of our minds that we can't have real access to. Like, we will never really know them. They're always, there's always a mystery. And, but he says, it, this is not the whole truth. Um, because um, he calls this um, um, this kind of philosophy correlational, correlationist philosophies, um, or uses a term called ontotaxonomy. Like this is all very technical, but it basically it basically means thinking of the world as split in two parts, um, or thinking of everything as split in two parts: the the stuff that's in your mind and the other stuff, and which creates kind of like paradox, paradoxical problems. Like if you have something in your mind, um, like is that like, like how does that relate to the, to the things that are outside your mind? And is there something outside of your mind? Realists would say yes, but that's just the realist uh, perspective. And how does the stuff inside your mind relate to the stuff outside your mind? So these are all of these kinds of questions that you would ask um, when you're a correlationist. And a lot of people agree that this is how the world is. Like, this is basically what people think of, like, what Western philosophers, a lot of Western philosophers, think of the world since Kant or even before. Um, and um, Harman says, and not just Harman, like, the, the whole speculative realism movement says, no, that's, that's not the whole thing, because this rift between um, you and the world. It's not the only rift that's there. The rift is between everything. So Kant was right, but he didn't go far enough. That's what, what, what Harman usually says, right? So we, don't, we, we can't stop at the rift between um, humans, uh, human beings, their mind, and the rest of the world. Like, it can't be true that this is what the cosmos circles about around. This is an anthropocentric perspective, so it puts 
man or mankind in the center. And we are in the process of, um, uh, like as mankind, we are in the process of destroying the planet we live on. And so, yes, we have tremendous effect on our planet, but other planets couldn't care less. Like there are other worlds, uh, there are other galaxies. There, like, um, it would be like it's it's very easy to make the point to say it it makes no sense that this is how we should cut the world, us against the world. It, it and so um, um, object-oriented ontology wants to overcome this um, by introducing. Um, a lot of um, new terms and a very different model of, of looking at the world and of looking at yourself and of trying to speculate about how um, a world would look like if you're not stuck in the position it's my mind or our minds against uh, everything else. I hope that makes kind of sense. And the the guiding question behind this book is really what is an object, right? Which ought to be a fairly easy question to answer in Triple O. But you notice that there are actually some problems in arriving at this easy answer, right? So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I struggled with that problem uh, for years because um, on the one hand. I wanted to find an answer to that to that question, of course, but on the other hand, the the struggle is is part of the point. Like the fact that an object is not as easy to grasp is kind of the point. Um, so I was trying to do something impossible, if you will, um, because the the key characteristics. Of, of objects in triple O is they, that they are independent or in a certain way independent from their context and from their inner workings. So both can change to a certain extent, yet the object, the object stays the same. And since I, I, I heard this, I was wondering about, okay, who gets to decide? Like, it stays the same. Okay, I, I agree. The, the River Rhine, for example, changes every second. It, it also stays the same. Um, if we change, like if we add a canal or if we like add a, if we add buildings to the shoreline or it changes, but it also stays the same. So what would we have to do for it not to stay the same? And who gets to decide? Um, interestingly, Triple uh, O doesn't talk about that. Um, and I was wondering why. Um, so I was thinking using, thinking about this using the theories that I knew from uh, computer science. So what are objects in object-oriented programming? How do we identify them? And where, how, like, mm, how can we say these are the same? Uh, are still the same. And um, so a major similarity between these two concepts, the one in computer science and the one in ontology or in philosophy, is that there is an inside and an outside of an object. 
So an, an object has inner workings that are somehow withdrawn. So that's, that's a term that, that um, Triple O borrows from Heidegger, yeah, where, where one, of, one of the few philosophers actually talking about stuff and things, right, and our relation to things, where that wasn't done for most of the time when we talked about the mind, and ideas, and the world, and, you know, um, and knowledge. And um, so, um, so in the 20th century, we started thinking about things. And, um, and so there is an inside and an outside to, to things or to objects. And the inside is, to a large part, unknown uh, or can't be known or is, is withdrawn. And the outside, um, there is what in computer science is called interfaces. So these are defined connection points to the object. But they are not the object. They are just like access points, like tiny doors or windows and or, or um, outlets, if you will. Sometimes they're even called outlets. Um, and you can put a plug in there that fits the outlet perf perfectly. But you wouldn't exhaust the object by doing that. You would still not know exactly what's going on in there. But you would have like a defined way of talking to the object. Like the, the object would talk to the to the to the piece of software that would use the object. So for example, in object-oriented programming, things that you see on your computer screen are represented by objects. So you see a window on your on your desktop screen, on your computer screen, that's an object. You see a button on that window, that's an object too. Um, in computer science, often these objects form hierarchies. So there is there is concepts like inheritance, where um, um, you have a specific kind of object that um, inherits properties, characteristics, and functionality from their um, parent object. So for example, um, a button um, on the screen is also a window of sorts. Um, like it, it, it inherits everything that a window can do. So it can be smaller or bigger, it can be closed or open, it can be active or inactive, it, can have, it will have a certain color, etc. All of these things are true for windows. They're also true for buttons. So in this hierarchy, like this is true for uh, uh, the Windows operating system for macOS and probably for a ton of other systems. Um, an object um, button is also in a, in a way a window. So and you can now, as a software developer, you can talk to that window and you can say, okay, minimize it, make it bigger, make it smaller, make it change the color, put some text in it. But you do that through these interfaces. So it's kind of a, a recipe, um, a recipe um, or a, like, a, um, yeah, you, 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 get, you get to talk to the thing in a certain way. You get to talk to the thing in a certain way and it will answer in a certain way. Um, so it will do this, um, it will change the appearance of the window, etc. But 
what actually happens on the inside, like how it does this, you have no idea as the software developer, usually. Um, because the object has been created by some other developer and you might not be able to look inside. And so you have to depend on the interfaces. And the insides of this object, its functionality, its inner workings may change any time. They even might change while the program is running. um, And you as the software developer, you would have no idea that this is happening. And actually, you don't care that much because usually it's a pretty reliable thing to talk through these interfaces. And the only thing is um, the interface, once the interface changes, and not just like incrementally adding more plugs to it, but changing the form of the plugs, changing the appearance of the plugs, changing the way you connect to it, then the whole thing falls apart. Then the object is not the same anymore. So if you, if you, if you, um, have to stop interfacing to it the same way you did in the past. Then for um, uh, object-oriented programming, we're talking a different object. It's not the same. <clears throat> there are other definitions. There are other ways of talking about objects, like you can have multiple instances of the same object. Like you can have 10 windows on the screen, but they're all... Um, just different instances of the same object. This is something you can't have in object-oriented ontology where every object is a unique thing in its own right. There are no copies or instances of objects. Um, But that's a different story. So I thought, okay, an object falls apart when their interface falls apart, like when I cannot connect to the object anymore. And then, of course, you have to ask, who is this I? Like, I cannot connect to this object anymore. If I ask this question, am I destroying the realism? Like, am I just, like, making this a correlationist philosophy again by making it about my relation to it, making the things about how I relate to them? And I didn't want to do this because that it, it felt wrong and um, I absolutely believe that um, a realist perspective is a, the, is a correct perspective um, with like some caveats and some fine print. But, <laughs> but um, so how do we think about objects that have this independence, that have these mysterious inner workings? And but that can, that can change to a certain extent and stay the same, and can change above and beyond that extent and break and become something else. So how do we do this? Um, and I thought, and that's the point that I make in the in the Interfact book. I thought that object-oriented ontology, for strategic reasons, doesn't go down that road. Because, yeah, it's dangerous because it's, it's kind of a, a realistic brand name, right? You, you, <laughs> you, 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 you will want to hurt the, the idea of this very interesting, exciting, realist perspective on the world. That's not boring at all. And 
you don't want to be lumped in with the the folks that saying everything is just one and like these esoteric principles or the the um, these ancient ideas of the aperon like uh, um, uh, an indeterminate lump where everything emerges from and and um, so how do you do this and the other question that comes up here or the other problem that comes up here is are we still discussing an ontological question like about what the world what the world is made of or how things are in the world i mean ontologists aren't even sure what ontology is about like there's a ton of definitions about this again um, or are we talking epistemology? Like, are we talking about how do we perceive these objects and how is our perception being mm, put into this? Um, and an early version of the, of, the, of the Interfact had the subtitle on the co-creation of objects. And um, I, I removed that because um, it... It kind of, like, I ran the risk of mm, making people think, okay, we're not, this is, this is a destructive criticism of a realist philosophy, which it absolutely is not. I'm very sympathetic to object-oriented ontology. Um, the, the difference is, um, I think uh, it can be pushed further without being destroyed by acknowledging that objects are always somehow um, connectable or compatible to other objects in the world. And so um, I started talking about uh, compatibility. So that's in, the, that's in the title of the book, of course. So compatibility... Mm, means do these interfaces click? Like, are we able to connect? And by we, I mean that in the um, uh, triple Oist sense of the word, uh, basically everything, anything, like a, as a rock connecting to the river it's in. Um, a um, country or a state connecting to the union it's in. Um, styrofoam, Timothy Morton's favorite thing, um, connecting to time, um, like the thing that we have put into the world that will outlast everything. There will be styrofoam in the world when everything else is, is gone. And we made this. So that, that's, a, that's a different strain of, of, of speculative realism that uh, Timothy Morton um, 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 goes for, where he talks about hyper-objects, yeah, objects that are ex excessively extended in, in time and space, and bigger for, uh, too big to grasp, like, like climate change, for example, is an object for um, Timothy Morton. And um, it probably is an object for Graham Harman too. And it, so it's, it's just a very big thing that can be related to, that can be interfaced with. And a lot of the problems that we see today is 
the inability or the unwillingness to interface with these things. Um, up until and beyond the point of denying the existence of things. Which is interesting because you can only can deny the existence of things that in some way are there. Like you, you need the thing, um, even if it's just like an imaginary thing, you need a thing to deny it. And um, there's a lot of this going on, but I'm, I'm getting, <laughs> um, I'm getting um, astray here. The, the, the question um, to come back to the, to the, to the, to your question, what is an object, or how do I work with this problem? Is um, when we agree that objects are not just like a mental construction, and we agree that there is a world outside the mind. And we agree that there is a rift between all objects, but there is still some way to touch between these, um, uh, these objects, a way of touching. That's the term that, that OOO uses, objects touch or confront each other. Uh, so there is something going on between all objects, or at least potentially between all objects. And um, so what is that? In, in object-oriented ontology, there is a, a model that's being introduced, which is called the quadruple object. And the quadruple object po posits that there are four poles in every object, a sensual object, a real object, sensual qualities, and real qualities. So these are four um, um, what is called poles. And um, just to, to make this a bit um, easier to grasp, if we just focus on, let's say, the, the, the real object and the sensual object for, for a minute. So the real object is the part of an object that's the withdrawn part. That's the part that we cannot access. That not just we cannot access, that's, that's inaccessible. So every object has this. So every object is um, in its totality um, un, ungraspable. Um, like we will never have full access to it. And by we, <laughs> I mean, everything like there is no full access to an object you can look at the chair you can have other people look at the chair you can put the chair in a world where is there where there's no people at all and whatever you do or don't do you will not get to the bottom of the chair that's something that is very strange for realist philosophy because it's not naive at all like it's very mysterious and it's very strange like we make the point as realists that yes, the chair exists and it exists independent of my perception of it. But I'm not 100% sure what it is and no one is. Um, so that's the real object part. The central object part is how it appears, how it seems to be. Um, and not just for me, 
And that's where the interesting realist part comes in. So while if I start with, with myself, um, I would have to acknowledge I have a central object and a real object too. Like I, there is stuff inside me as a person that I do not understand and that I'm not able to fully grasp and no one is. Um, but then there's also um, the part of me that um, appears to the outside and that um, um, can be interfaced with. Like, for example, uh, my um, ability to speak a certain language. That's an interface, in a way. Or the, the way I look, um, if you are able to see. Um, and Triple uh, O says that a central object can never directly connect to another central object. There's always a real object in between. And a real object can never connect to another real object. There's always a central object in between. So it's this back and forth. Um, there is no direct connection, never. So if I look at an object um, and the model says it consists of a central and a real object pole, and I connect to this, my real object connects to this other real object, we co-create a central object. I think it follows, um, it follows necessarily from the theory. Um, and this is where it becomes kind of problematic for Triple O as I found it back in 2015, 16, 17, when I wrote the book, um, is that Triple O always looks at the object in itself and looks at, these, at this fourfold, as it's called, another term um, borrowed from Heidegger, um, the central object, the real object, central qualities, the real qualities. And they're completely on their own. Like they're like an island in the, in the ocean. And I was wondering whose central object am I looking at when I look at this fourfold? Is it as the ob how the object appears to me? Is it how the object appears to like the ocean, the, the, the rock in the river? the English language, the atmosphere, I don't know. And so if a central object can only uh, come into existence by two real objects touching, then an object cannot be on its own as long as we say it always has a central uh, object part. There must be some kind of connection, even like a very weak one, perhaps just a potential of a connection, but there has to be something. And this is where I, when I thought, yeah, this is an interface. This is an interface. You don't have to use it. There is no need. You don't even have to be aware of it. It can be uh, like hard to use. It can be undocumented, so you don't know about it. But if it doesn't have an interface, if there is no, um, even there's, if there's not the slightest possibility to do something, to touch, 
to confront, to interact with the object. And I'm not talking of like human interaction. I'm talking any kind of confrontation, any object at all. What is this thing then? It's obviously not on the same plane of reality than everything else. So I would say it doesn't exist. So I would go as far as saying if it doesn't have any interfaces, uh, there's no use in talking about this. (laughs) It's it's just uh, it's. it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it feels wrong in, in this theory. And I'm not negating the, the fact that objects withdraw and that objects um, are mysterious and cannot be exhausted. Absolutely not. I'm just saying, as long as we say that objects in object-oriented ontology necessarily um, have a central object component or pole, um, there has to be at least one other real object to co-create this central object. So if I look at something, that that something and I together, we co-create the central object. And if the glass of water is on the table, the glass and the table co-create the central object that is how the glass and the table are like physically in that for example <clears throat> um, um, uh, confronting each other so that totally works outside of like mind world relationships or um, and so um, if you continue to think about this you you'll get to very uncomfortable um, uh, points where you think, okay, if an object cannot be alone or solitary, as long as there is a central part to it, and that it has to connect to at least one or at least be able to connect her. And that's, of course, true for the other object too, and so on and so on. So in the end, shouldn't there be an object that somehow um, represents the possibility, the, the potential for all objects somehow to relate, to interface with each other. So I called that the pan object for lack of a better term. And I'm, I'm not even saying that this is a, like already an original thought because it's basically just like rigorously applying what was there in in object-oriented ontology, just thinking what happens if I take this fourfold model seriously. And I would say this is where this leads. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean that like um, everything is one. that's, That's not what this says. This just says objects have to have at least one interface. Um, And if that breaks, okay, then it's a different object, fine. If it persists through time, it's the same object because we cannot talk about the real object. Like we will never know what's going on there. But, um, and not just we, like nothing. And so we have to admit that if we look at what we can (laughs) look at, and that's the the central object part, 
then um, um, this is how we identify an object. and This is how an object can be identified. And if these interfaces fall apart, um, it's a different object, regardless of what's going on on the inside. And so when, when looking at this and when thinking of this as um, this network or um, as a mesh, which also is a term that Timothy Morton uses, um, and you, you think of it as something that is not equally dense everywhere, um, then this is, this is the point where I came to think of this portmanteau word interfact, which conflates interface and fact, because I thought at some point um, what this structure does is um, it stabilizes reality in a way. Um, and it does that by conflating things that are or, or things and and relations that in philosophy I think are often viewed as very different things, namely ontology and epistemology. So what is the world made of? How are things in how are things in the world? And how do we perceive them? And aren't there like in the extreme speculative realism sense, aren't there epistemic processes between objects that are like not known to have like a mind like it sounds a bit mysterious and esoteric so i'm not but i don't want to go there but um, um i think it's possible to think about object-oriented ontology <clears throat> as something that has a um, um relationist an important relationist part to it without being correlationist. Um, it does not depend on human world relation. This is not what this critique is about. So I'm, I'm not trying to get a human world prior ontological priority in through the back door in the interfact. It's not, I'm not interested in that. But I'm very much interested in the fact that objects as described in Harman's fourfold are always half sensual and the these this sensual part and the fact that an object cannot be completely isolated this is why we can objects but this is why we can identify objects it might be poor it might not be perfect we we're not getting at the root of the thing but we can um we can um uh talk about them, we can identify them, and we can agree or disagree on an object not being the same anymore. Even if we disagree, we have a, we have a reference point to, to talk about. Um, and <clears throat> the fact that in some areas this fabric is more dense or um, um, is not equally dense everywhere means that there are a lot of like, epistemic processes taking place in one part or one zone of it and close to nowhere somewhere else. That would be absolutely um, possible. Um, and 
I think that objects that can be identified more easily than others are more easily identifiable because there is as um, um, a stronger density of objects um, relating to that objects in a certain part of this of this fabric, and and this density, this saturation of relations, is what I would say. Um, this is what we call facts. It's a certain density of relations. And so <clears throat> the pan object is just kind of a stepstone to the, to the notion of the, the interfacts. The, the pan object follows necessarily from what triple O posits, I would say. It's not a fully formed original thought. It's just a stepstone. And while I'm not really interested in making statements about whether there is an all-encompassing object or not, it just follows logically from from Tipolo's premises as i read it and i'm um, very but i'm very interested in insisting on the fact that objects need other objects to become objects for other objects so while at the same time holding that this notion does not kill triple o objects are always half sensual and sensual objects are co-creations of at least two real objects and this is what makes this network of objects which gives um, the stability that makes objects persist in the first place and make makes us identify facts as like stable, more denser parts of this network of objects. And uh, this is what uh, the interfact is. I think that's beautifully put. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Uh, the book is The Interfact, published in 2021 with Open Humanities Press. Gabriel Yoran, thank you so much for your time. Adam, thanks for having me.